Welcome to Pointed Questions. My name is Brent Weinbach. With me is Donnie Devanian. Our guest today is bioethicist Andy Kondrat. We will be talking to him about communication and baseball on this episode of Pointed Questions. What is bioethics? There's a lot of different words that we can use for what someone like me does. Um, bioethics is the umbrella term. It's kind of the original term that, that talks about ways to think about um, science and medicine and how to be responsible uh, when practicing those things. Uh, and then you have your specialties. So there is research ethics, which really does talk about research design and studies and uh, subject recruitment. There's uh, the more academic stuff we're talking about. And then there's clinical bioethics. And that can be, once again, research, search, or it can be in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's where I am. And so I'm doing clinical hospital ethics. And, and was that your plan to work in a hospital when you were studying to be to do this job or uh were you willing to go into anything at one point you know it's actually the way this worked was a little bit of luck um i went to grad school not knowing that the job i have actually existed did Um, you uh major in philosophy when you were i did undergrad so i was an undergrad philosophy major and then i went uh and i got my phd in philosophy uh specializing in bioethics Mm -hmm. but not really realizing that it it could be parsed out in so many different ways and also not actually knowing you could do that in a hospital. What did you think it entailed? Thinking about things in interesting ways. Um, in well, in how all do you, honesty. What, what did you think? How, where did you think it could be applied? Oh, I actually had no idea. Uh-huh. Um, it, I, I went to grad school because I wanted to learn more philosophy and I wanted to... Did you think ultimately you'd be teaching or something? No, or? no. I actually knew I wouldn't want to be a professor. Uh-huh. So I, I went to grad school with no plan. Okay, yeah. Um, you just love Why it. did you go? Yeah. Just to, for your own thought yeah, I, uh, growth, I guess. Yeah, you yeah, know, your I, own I, brain growth. Yeah. I, I got my undergraduate degree in philosophy, and I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And so after yes. four years of undergrad, I was like, I, I have scratched the surface of this, and I need to at some point go back and learn more just for my own edification, uh, for my own interest. So I took some time off, and I, you know, I was a data analyst before going back to grad school, and my thought was, I could be a data analyst after grad school too. Like I, I, I just want to learn more, but I also not knowing I didn't want to be a professor. I was like, what's an interesting way to think about these topics aside from teaching them. Mm-hmm. And that's when I came across this idea of, of bioethics as just something else to think about while doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, uh, I ended up writing my master's thesis on clinical decision-making, like in hospitals, yeah. but as an academic exercise. Sure. And how, how did you learn about th- that happening? About what? How did, you come, how did you come across? What led you to writing your thesis about that? Um, reading other people that were writing about clinical decision-making or mm-hmm. ethical thinking. And um, what drew you to that aspect? Because there was like real-life application. There was sort of this stuff that's all theoretical and then it was actually having real world world or real human uh, effects and consequences at the time i'm not even sure i i was fully aware of the real world implications or Mm -hmm. applications i really think it was something to latch all the nebulous philosophy onto so Mm -hmm. i i it grounded things that were mm -hmm. sort of just theoretical absolutely so there's to there's two different branches of philosophy and i studied continental which is kind of the 
stereotypical thinking in it's a room. The one that there's they they just have like bagels and donuts or something. And yes, you it, about, and no, you I'm just choose that and yeah, you get coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so, but knowing that continental philosophy is kind of nebulous and can really go anywhere, mm-hmm. I, I wanted. Some I'm sorry. Sort of what, what does continental, continental it, mean? There's continental and analytic. Yeah. So analytic is the burrowing in, like logic, philosophy of language. Okay. So unpacking statements and mm-hmm. and kind of creating a structure while continental is starting somewhere and then spiraling out. So Kant and Descartes and kind of those classic European names mm-hmm. are, I mean, continental literally is the European continent. Um, oh, okay. It's not uh, named after Kant. <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> the, uh, Kant... Uh, ended up doing something called deontology, which is actually very applicable to academic bioethics. Um, and we're going a lot of different directions. Here, yeah, I sure. Apologize, but uh, we're spar- it, we're starting somewore and spiraling yeah. out, <laughs> just like continental. Exactly. And so, in in the original, <laughs> the original bioethical thinking, which was really academic, and it, it's the field only goes back about fifty five years, um, mm-hmm. maybe maybe less. Um, like, okay, how do we think about these emerging technological, scientific, medical issues? Transplants were becoming even doable. Um, dialysis. Um, you could keep people alive longer. And- so it was because of the um, advancement of technology and mm-hmm. the advancement of science that uh, moral or ethical issues started coming up more. They've always been there, They've but it was just there, yeah. finally people were like, oh, we need to actually maybe synthesize or systematize there must have been a correlation between the advancement of technology 100 percent. i think i mean because bioethics wasn't a field until the late 60s was it also that because there were more ethical issues that would come up because of technology for example you're saying making you know allowing people to live longer and stuff Mm -hmm. like that just more of those questions came up that's why this became more of a yeah i i I think that what it kind of comes down to in that regard is Ethics is the is the space that is in between the can and should, right? We can do this, should we? And with technological advancement, can became a much bigger uh, field. Yeah, you, know, you can do more things, and so it became more obvious. I think is the word that yeah. we should think about the should, right? And that's probably where why bioethics actually blossomed into it, it, its own honest-to-God field. So you got into this uh, clinical uh, realm of, mm-hmm. of thinking about these things and studied it in, in, uh, for your PhD. Um, how did you end up getting a job in that field? Yeah, so I, going back to um, my master's thesis about the clinical decision-making, mm-hmm. I was defending my thesis. Well, you know, you have your little committee and you sit in a room for like two hours and they just ask you questions and try to see if you've made a real argument or not. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, my committee was like, hey, have you talked to this guy who works at a hospital and where I, out, where I did my grad work? And I was like, no, I don't know who that is. Like, well, he's the, he's the ethicist at that hospital. Oh, um, mm-hmm. I mean, this, this stuff you're writing about, that's what he does. And I said out loud to my committee, which I probably shouldn't have, I was like, oh, I didn't know that was a job. Uh-huh. Like, well, you should, you should talk to him. Yeah. Um, they didn't hold you, that against you. No, that, that I passed. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they're very nice. Yeah. Uh, they're like, you should, you should talk to him. So, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes he lets people, you know, watch him work. Yeah. And so I emailed him and I, I 
you know, long story short, I showed up at the hospital he worked at and followed him around for a day as he was doing ethics consults all day and, you know, really heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it just, it really solidified this, this idea of all this theoretical stuff gets applied now to these people in these important situations. And, you know, kind of that day I was like, oh I, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. Did and you I, get a job through him? No, I ended up, I ended up interning for him for about 10 months. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of following him around, talking to him about his work, seeing one way to do it. Um, and then I went back and kept writing my dissertation and applied for a job in, yeah. in, in Chicago uh-huh. um, that just <laughs> happened to have an open position. And yeah. I, I was there for about three and a half years before coming out to LA. So your job is to help doctors make decisions that um, make tough decisions. Yeah, in, in a is way. Is that what it is or what? Yeah, yeah. it's... I, I would make it a little broader and a little a little vaguer. Mm-hmm. Um, we help people in the medical field. Mm-hmm. So that can be doctors, nurses, patients, families, um, social workers, anyone that's dealing with patients and the care of patients. We like to give them space, frames, um, ways to think about how they're doing that. And do you, you don't have any authority over these people, right? No, we're, and, we're advisory, if right. that. <laughs> and they, but they, you are, they don't, they sometimes don't, you're not asked for your help, right? You, you have to give them, you're required to give them help, right? Or help <laughs> them see things. I mean, I guess what I mean is, is that there's, Sometimes they don't want you to be there. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. But sometimes they um but sometimes they do want you mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. It um sometimes we get called by clinicians and they say, "Can you help us think about or they actually might say, "Can you help us fix this?" which then the answer is, "No, I can't fix it, but I can help you think, think about, about ways it. to do this." Mm-hmm. Um even then though, if I get if we get called by one person involved in patient care, it doesn't mean that everyone involved actually right. wants us to come talk to them. But what if, is there ever a situation where there's no one involved in the situation that, and you're still there anyway, and you're yeah, still having I, to advise them? I, uh, I, so the, the medical team does rounds in the ICU every morning, the teaching team, you know, with the attending and the residents and the nurses, and they talk about each patient. And I go on these rounds with the team. Um, and if I hear something that doesn't, quite add up to me or I think there might be an issue or, uh, you know, the, maybe I get the same feeling in my gut that someone else gets when they call us. Mm-hmm. I will sometimes just insert myself into the conversation about that patient. And when you do these rounds, is that, it's almost like a health inspector or something, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, doing mm-hmm. what you're doing, you're kind of checking up to see what's going on with that stuff. Um, or what? I think, well, we, if any ethicist or ethics consultant or bio, whatever, there's so many words for what we do. Um, and there are so many different ways to do what we do. Um, so if you're talking to me, but if you talk to the guy in the next hospital over or the girl in, you know, two hospitals over, they might have very different ways of doing what they do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that regard, I'm speaking for myself. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Uh, but we would almost universally say, we don't like being thought of eth- as ethics police. Right. You know, we're not trying to actually assign a grade. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we're not trying to slap hands because mm-hmm. that's a real bad way for people not to want to talk to us the next time. Yeah. And that's why I am kind of harping on this idea of, of helping people think through so that they own part of the process. Right. They learn as well. So maybe next time they can think through it for themselves, but that's different than proscribing an action or prescribing a solution. You know, it's, it's, uh, but there is an element of you, you know, not being, not policing, mm-hmm. but uh, you're, you're making these rounds, right? There's so an you're... element of, of raising issues that maybe people don't want to think about. Yeah. Now, okay, let's, what, can you give us an example mm-hmm. of what you, uh, one example of what you do uh, and, or a situation that might occur and, and how you help with that situation? Sure. I mean, a, a recent one that someone actually called us. Um, w- was a, a patient, and obviously for privacy rules, I have to be vague. Sure. But a patient, um, the team was the team felt a patient was in need of a tracheotomy, which is um, a surgery to insert a breathing tube in the throat, which is called a tracheostomy, um, or it's the other way around. I never remember um, because this patient had a, a breathing tube in his throat, like in, through the mouth. And given the medical situation and given what they felt they understood about the patient and family, the trach was a necessary intervention. And some of the family was refusing that recommendation. And so they called us because they didn't, the, the real question was, what do we do? And, um, you mean, okay. The family didn't want to have the tube down his throat. So the family was fine with the tube down the throat. And so the, the idea from the medical team was, okay, given what we think we understand about what the family's saying they think should happen for, for this patient's recovery, the way to get to that recovery is with a trach. Mm-hmm. So now the family is refusing something that seems to be in line with what they had said they wanted as an overall goal. What do we do about that? What, what was their reasoning? Uh, that's the first question I had. And so I, you know, when someone calls us for something like this, sometimes they, they're, they're honestly saying, we don't actually know what to do. Sometimes they're saying, can you come talk to the family? Which going back to what I said earlier is usually like, no, but I'll help you think through what could be helpful. And then if it comes to me talking to the family as part of that, sure. Um, but with a call like that, I, I need to figure out first why are they saying no, you know, and what barriers are there in the, like, and also then I have to actually check the medical piece. I'm now I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD in philosophy, which is not medicine, but when a, when a medical professional says patient needs intervention X needs is a real loaded term. So I want to get really clear on what needs means. Um, cause that patient only needs a trach if it's in line with the bigger picture of goals and values that that patient would hold to be important. If not, then that patient needs not to have a trach. So I want to get clear and I want to get the medical professionals clear about what they mean by need. Mm -hmm. And when I asked this physician that it gave me a lot of information because he told me, well, you know, the family is is hopeful for this sort of recovery 
and I think I can get him there, or I think there's a chance he can get there, but to do that, if he has the tube down his throat the way it is now, he has to be sedated because it, it, I don't know if you've ever been intubated, but it's very uncomfortable and you have to be sedated a lot of the time. And if the goal is to get him stronger, lying sedated in a bed isn't gonna get him there. But having a trach means he can get up, he can move around. There's a, there's there, that, that's where the chance lives for him to get to what they're hoping he can get to. And in that conversation, what I learned also was that he had already done a lot of the conversation with the family about where they were at. Because a lot of times someone will call and say, well, they're saying no. And I say, well, what has the family said? It's like, well, I don't know. I haven't talked to them, but they just won't do it. And then that's when I have a different conversation about, well, here's what you need to talk about with the family. So in this case, there's a general idea of why the family should, which is another loaded term, think that a trach is a good idea. So I want to know then what what barrier is there to them saying, to them agreeing? Is it a barrier of understanding? Is it a barrier of communication? Is it a barrier of fear? Is it a barrier of not connecting what is actually a surgery? It's an intervention, which is scary, to the outcome should be this. Like, where Where is the lapse? Um, and where in the family is that lapse and how is the family dynamic and, you know, are, and okay, now let's see how we can address those barriers. So, you know, in talking to the, the nurse, I believe, I believe it was, she said, you know, there's a wife and there's three kids. It seems to be that everyone was on board earlier, but now the wife is the one that seems to be not really but I think that the kids are still kind of on board and the daughter seems to be the most reasonable. And I say, okay, well, if that's the case and you have that information, maybe if the wife is scared or is unsure of what's going on but doesn't want to talk to the medical professionals for whatever reason, maybe she's told the daughter. Have you talked to the reasonable, quote, reasonable daughter about what she's talked to her mom about? Like, let's let's actually get this communication together so that we understand where this refusal is coming from to address it or to see if the medical team has missed an important piece that, oh, we, we actually shouldn't do this trick. And so this is a fairly straightforward consult, um, but it, it happened, I think, last week. Um, but it, and it, did you help him re- resolve it or what? Yeah, I mean, he in talking to the physician, he he kind of took these ideas and thoughts, and you know, we got the the social worker to also be involved in the conversation because she had established some rapport with the family, and got them talking. And you know, I because this is a hospital and things move quickly, I you know, I saw the next day that the patient had gotten a trach, and I past the physician in the hallway, you know, while he was doing rounds with one team and I was doing rounds with another. So we had three seconds to talk and say, Hey, it looks like things seem to work out. What, what happened there is like, Oh no, we, we just talked and I, I, you know, got talked a little bit more and it, then they, they seem to be okay with it. So I actually don't know what that conversation looked like. I didn't have to be involved in it. So in this case, it was just a matter of them not really communicating enough with each other. Potentially, was the, was yeah. The issue, yeah. Kind of, and you I mean a lot? It turns out a lot of ethics issues, and a lot of times we're called the, of the, lack, the, lack the of problem was caused by and can be solved by 
communication and, and solved can mean a lot of different things. Okay, well, what's an example of a situation where it's not really about communication, but there's something else going on? I mean, I think in in some ways it's always, if not exactly communication, it's understanding or empathy. Um, Because there can be times that if the team can call us and can be very clear on what they think the right thing to do is and can be very clear that they think the family is doing the wrong thing. So the trach is a, is a minor one, but you have someone that ha- is in a persistent vegetative state and the family is saying, well, keep him or her on a ventilator and keep him or her with a feeding tube. And if they get an infection, do antibiotics and basically keep them alive and the communication there is quite clear the team says this is something we should not be doing and the family saying this is something you should be doing there's no breakdown in communication I mean, there. The, the medical team is saying that they should just have them not live yeah. anymore yeah yeah because yeah. there's no hope of recovery yeah there's no well and that's where it's I think there's there's a lack of understanding or empathy because there's no hope of recovery as the physicians or the clinicians see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some, you know, um, Orthodox Jewish populations are a good example. For for that culture, generally speaking, because we're you know it's not everyone, but um, breath equals life in. Orthodox Judaism, so they actually don't recognize death by neurologic criteria as being dead. That's or the common phrase is brain dead. Brain death is death. But in the Orthodox Jewish faith, they don't believe that, or they don't hold to that, I should say. And once you have started an intervention, you cannot withdraw it. And so when you have those two things together, you might have a loved one with all these interventions in a persistent vegetative state but that's meaningful for them. So there's no hope of recovery of function or of communication or even of acknowledgement of others for that patient, but life in itself for that community and for that family is meaningful. And so the communication is clear, but sometimes that's, that involves getting the medical team to just understand a different point of view and some people, you know, a day in the hospital is too much of an intervention, and we seem to be okay with that. And for some people, long-term kind of aggressive interventions to a non-functioning body is meaningful, and we need to be okay with that too. Did that situation happen, or are you just using that as an example? That happens all the time. So do they end up usually... To accommodate the needs of the family, do they usually end up just keeping uh, a person alive? Yeah. Or is it the I other mean, way around? It it um, The problem with my job is the answer is so often it depends. Uh-huh. Um, Are so, there a lot of people being kept alive in a vegetative state just for a long time? I Does that you know, happen a lot? It happens. I don't, I don't How know. How many years is somebody brain dead, but they're just... Well, the, the, the careful thing there is if you're brain dead, you're dead. Uh huh. 
but your body can be kept going through artificial means yeah. for years. So there, there, that exists. Yeah, and people if, for years. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, this is obviously I'm just per- cherry picking cases, but yeah. I've read cases where people can be alive for a couple decades. So they've just in a persistent vegetative state. I, yeah, because if you're you're you cannot be kept alive in a brain dead state because you're dead. Mm-hmm. But a PVS persistent vegetative state is different. There's still some brain function. Uh huh. But um, but what about completely brain dead? So the um. If that happens, um, 49 states recognize death by neurologic criteria as death. Mm-hmm. New Jersey allows for objections to that. Um, if a patient is brain dead, most places um, have what they call reasonable accommodation rules where the hospital can say to the family that does not acknowledge death by neurologic criteria they can say um you know your your loved one is dead and there there's actually a um oh a checklist that's been set up by a national you know neurologic consortium of how to check for for death by neurologic criteria different reflexes you can check and two physicians have to do it and you know to say as definitively as possible your loved one is dead thus we will be withdrawing interventions that are just keeping functions going in some period of time. Uh, and the reasonable accommodation can be a day, it can be a couple days, but it's not super long. And the negotiation there is, so you need to get your family here if you want them to be here when we withdraw these interventions, but we have no obligation to keep a dead Body. That's how it is in 49 st- states. 49 states. But in so New Jersey, are there people who are kept functioning to some degree, yeah. even though there's no the, uh, neurological activity? Um, very recently, there's a, a pretty big case in the bioethics world, so it's probably not a big case anywhere, of a, a, a girl named Jahai McMath who went underwent a tonsillectomy in California, in Oakland, and there were complications, and she was declared dead by neurologic criteria Mm -hmm. within a couple weeks of that surgery having the complications it had. Her family refused to acknowledge that, um, but the state of California still issued a death certificate. But through media coverage and, you know, GoFundMe and stuff like that, they were able to hire a company and they found a hospital in New Jersey and flew her to that hospital um, where there they put in a tracheostomy and a feeding tube and then transfer her out into um, an apartment, but she had round the clock nursing care um, and was alive. Oh, see, that's not true. <laughs> was, her was, body was kept functioning for about five years. Um, she under she went wow. through some uh, puberty. No kidding. Um, even though she was dead. Wow. Uh, oh, and wow. now uh, maybe oh, maybe only a week or two ago. And was she um, excreting uh, feces and stuff? I would assume so because mm-hmm. she she had a feeding tube and has to go somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, and only a couple weeks ago they withdrew interventions from her, such that 
<laughs> New Jersey has now declared her dead. The the and the 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 twist on this um, is that the family has been contesting in California the death certificate uh, for the past many years, um, partially because they don't believe she was dead, and partially because medical care only gets paid for for living bodies. Mm-hmm. So now she's dead in New Jersey, even though she's and dead in California, except the death certificate in California is being contested. So she can't be buried in California, even though she's been dead in California for five years. And how long has, I mean, how did, did the family decide to finally accept her death? And that's why they pulled the plug on her. I don't know what? what the reasoning was. I don't think they've given any interviews, but they, they decided to withdraw interventions. It wasn't that something happened that things stopped. Yeah. Um, but, so they so the family decided okay we can we can let her go at this point. Yeah, for, uh, that's an assumption. I don't know, yeah, but right, yes. Right. Um, and do you feel like you have a better grasp of what's right and what's wrong than the average person? <laughs> no, no, I just know the loopholes. Um, <laughs> what is wrong? What constitutes as wrong? You know that that is a that is a Excellent question. If we had that answer, we probably wouldn't need ethics. Um, you know, I don't subscribe to a, a moral relativism, mm-hmm. which is kind of the who's to say, or if it's right for you, it's right for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can clearly point to things, actions that are wrong mm-hmm. and actions that are right. But I can't give you like a taxonomy of what that is or how they come to be right or wrong. Um, and also we're particular people living in a particular time such that, you know, a hundred years ago, things that were right sure as hell aren't right now, you know? And so we keep, I think we keep evolving toward having a better picture of what right and wrong is, but I can't tell you definitively what is. Is there anything that can indicate that something's wrong? (laughs) When somebody feels pain maybe or something like that, or if somebody is hurt? Well, there's it, pain in and of itself is not wrong because pain in and of itself is a warning mechanism for your body. It's a physiological response to tell you to stop doing something or to look out for something. That's what pain is. I guess, well, I mean, I, I guess when somebody does something and it affects somebody in a negative way, mm-hmm. either it causes them pain or it causes them some hurt even emotionally that is that mean that is that wrong what that person did it doesn't have to be right because uh, because it, it could be a hurt towards some good like surgery uh-huh it could be an emotional pain towards some good like i don't love you anymore right or they, they know, might be sensitive in such a way that's to to the other person is they think is unreasonable and then or something like that you know yeah but mm. so you're saying there is no right or wrong i'm not saying that <laughs> i'm saying because uh, I, I think what you're trying to do is figure out a, co- a sort of some sort of common understanding of what might be right or wrong, right? Is that what sort of what you help do, perhaps? Because I think I, uh, I want to split the middle ground there between a common understanding of what's right and wrong, and um, understanding that different people have different understandings within a framework that we have to accept. So, like. There are certain things we have to accept as wrong, you, you know. Uh, but 
you know, and I think we have to accept certain things as right, but within the larger framework, for some people that keeping a body alive in a persistent vegetative state is wrong. And for some people it's right. And there I'm not willing to take a side, take a side. I can, that I can say it's not something I would want for myself, but if you have religious commitments such that you might not even want it for yourself, but your commitments tell you that you have to, and you believe that those commitments are important to follow, then God damn it. I'm going to follow them. Then it's still right for you. Um, that that being said, you can't say, oh, if you do something in the name of religion, it's right. Wait, if they had religious commitments, though, maybe they wouldn't use the phrase, you know, <laughs> God damn it, or, or perhaps, I don't know. They might have said, gosh darn it. You know? it, it depends <laughs> what their commitments are. <laughs> yeah. To blasphemy. That's true, <laughs> actually, yeah. Maybe they, they worship uh, the other side, you know. Yeah. They worship the, the and, devil. Do you feel like you, that some doctors are don't have uh, any sort of ethical compass? I would say that I have... Have you met that? I've seen doctors who have different ethical commitments than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, it's... Do you have an example of that? Um, y- yeah. I I mean, there are those physicians that also share those commitments with the families that they say, yeah, I do want to keep this patient in a PVS versus vegetative state for as long as I can because that informs how I doctor. Um, I have I have an example that I'm going to be very vague on because it's a real <laughs> life example Yeah, where we as a team of other healthcare folks had come up with what we thought was a really good plan for this patient to get the care that he needed that he wasn't getting otherwise. And it involved a little bit of flexibility on one of the physician's parts in how he actually just interacted with this patient. And we brought this to him and his his response was, no, he gets treated just as every other patient gets treated. That's how this works. So if you wanna couch that in ethical terminology, which I normally wouldn't, he, he was looking at this as kind of an equity and justice issue. We, we treat people the same because that's what fair is. While maybe my idea of fairness in that instance is treating alike people alike and different people differently. And this guy was different in certain ways that needed to be treated differently. Or, I, you know, but I, I also could say he was kind of being a dick. You know, if I, <laughs> so did that doctor get his way? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And did you try to influence him? We we definitely spoke with him. And Did uh, you have an intervention with him? <laughs> he was not willing to engage that much. And yeah. I you know, the 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 biggest problem I have with physicians broadly speaking is not that they are bad doctors. They're good doctors. And not that they're bad people. They're good people. It's not that they don't care about what they're doing. They do care about what they're doing. It's that there's, they have been trained that you see a problem, a medical physiological problem, and there is a correct medical physiological response to it, which strips away any sort of individuality or personhood 
or that yeah, might human. actually inform what that choice right. might yeah. actually look like. So they they're kind of robots in a sense, or I mean, they they their their approach is robotic and no not humanistic. They're trained clinicians, and mm -hmm. clinical in some way means you respond to the problem in a precise way. Um, and there's a lot for doctors to learn. Do you think and some doctors are stupid? I think some everyone is stupid. Like, sure, yeah. I mean, Have you ever worked with a doctor or been involved with a doctor that you just thought, what is this person, how did this person even get a degree? You know, I, <laughs> I'll be careful how I respond to that, but there are doctors where I wish their ability to think differently about issues were more well honed. Um, their ability to not just respond in the, I have been taught that if you have this disease, you treat it with this drug. But, you know, because the, there's that intermediary spot, I think so important of, I'm, I'm treating this person with this disease. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do I treat this person with what <laughs> drug or what litany of things do I treat this person with this disease? And though I've come across those physicians, which can be difficult. So it seems as though every situation is different. Mm -hmm. And your opinion is that every situation should be treated differently because every situation is different. And with that, ideas of right and wrong are different depending on the situation as well. So considering the subjective nature of these situations, do you feel like there is no such thing as an objective truth? Well... That goes to a, um, that points to a really difficult divide in philosophical thought, which is um, ontology and epistemology. Um, ontology is being, it's what is. Epistemology is knowing what we can actually know about. Um, and there very well, there very well may be an objective truth, but that doesn't mean I can know if there is or what it is. Mm -hmm. um, there are, I'm sure, no matter how advanced our sciences get, no matter how advanced our quantum theories get, no matter how advanced our brains get, there are going to be things about being that we will never have access to knowing. Um, you know, it's, if you look at any other animal, you're like, oh, that bird doesn't know shit. Well, why are we any different on a grander scale? Our brains are not infinite. So this is a really long and pretentious way of saying, I don't know. And that doesn't mean there is or there isn't. And that doesn't mean that in the way that we evolve and the way that we grow as a species, as people, that we are not in some way tapping into that objective truth, reality, whatever it is, in ways that we may not even fully understand. Um, you know, we were we were drinking water before we knew it was 
to hydrogen and an oxygen molecule. Like we, we can function in the world without knowing all of it. And some of that actually taps into very important things about being, about how water keeps us alive and sustains us that we find out later. Um, we don't know why certain things work still, but we do them. The same may be, may be for truth and morals. I don't know. Do you, you employ critical thought, uh, you know, on a daily basis? You do it for your job, right? Do you think a lot when you're not working? Are you constantly thinking about things? And um, are you, yeah, are you, are you critically thinking about things um, on, on a normal basis? I try to shut it down when I can. Um, you know, I, you don't decide to get a PhD in philosophy if you're not willing to think about stuff a lot and, and kind of be really live with ideas about things and, and critically think about whatever it is that's in front of you. But I also really like going home and watching baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, do you start getting heady about that though too sometimes yeah I, I, <laughs> I read it like every baseball article on 538 and all the analysis and, and like I, I am definitely that asshole that's like baseball's not boring because what's happening between the pitches is as important about as what's happening on the field do you think that you think too much sometimes I <laughs> I, I would say that the evidence points to, to yes what are some techniques that you try to employ that are to make it so that you don't think as much? Um, How do you stop thinking? I, you know, I, I actually use comedy podcasts a lot Uh um, to the point where if I'm, if I'm trying to just enjoy a comedy podcast and something comes up, if I need to read something or I, even if I get a text, I will pause it because I need to not be thinking while doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I do. I actually do watch a lot of baseball, and I, I, in, I, I don't mind kind of getting lost in that and thinking a lot about that because it's not, you know, the professional thinking. You because you think so much. Would you describe yourself as easily distracted because of things? of thinking about something and that leading to something else, or do you stay focused on the one thing that you're thinking about? I can, I can be really focused on the one thing I'm thinking about if I need to be. Um, you, you, you have to learn how to read hundreds of pages of dense philosophy without your mind wandering. Sure. Otherwise you've wasted those hours. Um, do you ever feel like you, um, uh, have you ever thought, uh, have you ever thought to yourself that you needed to stop thinking to enjoy something? I don't usually think that. Or has Be- thinking too much made you enjoy something less? Or I'm I'm sure. Um, and if you laugh at something when you're listening to a comedy podcast, do you like to understand why you laughed? Not. Or all- do you like to? Or do you like to do? In- enjoy the idea that you don't understand why it's funny and, and you're okay living with that. I'm a hundred percent okay with, with not knowing why it's funny. Uh, but there are certain, like there'll be jokes that I whack actually will revisit. Um, just, and then I then try to 
stop myself from doing that because I am not a comedian. I don't, I'm not here to analyze the joke. I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm listening to that. I'm watching that special or whatever to enjoy it. Um, so in the moment, I'm really good at not trying to think about it too much. And I, and when I go back and start like, oh, that, what, what? No, I'll, I'll just try to stop. Donnie, hit him. You wake up in the middle of the night a lot? No. No. Hmm. I do. <laughs> what are you thinking about when you wake up in the middle of the night? I think about, you know, I get worried about my things, you know, like my body and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe I'm sick or something. I don't know. When I wake up in the middle of the night, I can usually remember the dream that I just had. And I'll just, I will think about that dream for a little bit. Not to analyze it. Not to, I'd, I'd actually, I think if, if you wake up and be like, oh, I know what that dream meant. You know what it meant. Like, oh, th- that person showed up in my dream because of whatever. But I never try to analyze, what did the dinosaur coming in mean? Like that. But mm. I'll just think, oh, that was interesting. Do doctors get defensive around you because they feel like you, you're trying to tell them what to do or something? They think that. Some, some do. Um, some absolutely do. And what I try to do in those instances... Um, especially with younger ones. I mean, your, your older grizzled physicians that have been in practice for since before ethics was in hospitals, you know, I, I will engage with them and I will try to be helpful if I can, but I'm not going to really try to change, change their ways at that point. But, um, with some of the younger ones and even, you know, they'll be defensive or think that I'm there to, you know, tell them they, they're wrong or whatever it is. I will really try hard to show that I am trying to help them do their job in such a way that it actually will probably make their job easier in the long run. And it's a, it takes a long time um, and it doesn't happen in one interaction, but you're really trying to show, hey, I'm here to, to be an asset to you. Um, and... If you're grappling with an issue and you call me, I might help you think through it such that you have solved it to your satisfaction, whatever solving means, so that you can then go on to the next thing. You're not hung up on it. You're not going back and having another family meeting that's going to take another four hours. And with the goal that they then understand that I'm there to help and then they might actually call me as opposed to me coming in after the ball is already rolling and be like, Oh, something's amiss here. Like if you, if you get out ahead of that by calling me, I might be able to make your job easier. So, um, has, so doctors, they, sometimes they don't like you. Yeah. Do yeah. they ever call you names? Um, in the past, not to my face, but in the past year, do they ever like half jokingly, but half seriously to fellows who's the, who are the, the, role between residents and attendings. They're doing like their specialty training. Two different fellows have said on rounds, Andy, I hate you so much. Um, Did they ever belittle your education level compared to theirs, even though it's still high, but they, they're theirs is higher and some, or not, is it regarded, I guess is higher or something that, that depends on who you ask. Like some people are really impressed by a PhD. Yeah, you know, I am. even even oh, uh, most people are, uh, but I, some MDs are. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, because it's 
such a different way of thinking that but i guess because um, you don't have an md and they do do they ever do they ever kind of try to point that out not explicitly but you will definitely get the type of person but this to be honest this comes in academia with philosophy phds too they just think that they already know everything and it may it may be because the title has gone to their head. It may be that they're that type of person. Um, but I, to be perfectly clear, not to cover my own ass because I've already said enough about doctors, that's mm-hmm. in every field. You know, mm-hmm. it, you're, you're going to have, you know, the, the, what kind of annoys me most about my own field is that you do get ethics people that are just sure there's a right way to do it and that they have it. And I've said it already once, but if there were a right way to do it and there was a right answer, you wouldn't need us. It would be a science, you know, because there would be a method. Um, and so when when I answer, it depends to a lot of things. There are some people that will just answer all these questions with, oh, well, you do this, this, and this, and then you've solved it. And like that, how do you how do you do that without context? So how do you approach uh, telling a doctor, well, wait a second, what about this? How do you approach getting them to think outside of their routine that they have? Um, if I don't... Are you very calm? Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, you, obviously, you don't try to be condescending in any way. You no, try to, no. Uh, I mean, what's, can you just... Can you, do it, can you perform that for us right now? Or? If I don't... <laughs> sure. If I, I mean, don't... Say Donnie's just... Yeah. He yeah. just... There's one way he knows how to do something, and he thinks this is the way you have to do it, and you need to tell him you know, otherwise, or not tell them otherwise, but to start maybe try to consider other options. Yeah, so let's let's say you're a resident on, and we're on rounds. No one's called me, I haven't been invited, so. Mm-hmm. And and you're, you're presenting a patient to, to the team, and this, this, this is a, a real scenario mm-hmm. of, of a 90-something-year-old with dementia who had a, a fractured hip. Okay from a fall mm-hmm. and the the resident was giving the plan which was taking this patient to surgery to repair a fractured hip so i in that case you know i, I just I say, hey um just one second before we go on uh, uh, okay just make it quick yeah no no i, I know I, but I, um i, I gotta get in there have, have you have you talked to um any of the family members about about this this plan yet? Um, and here here's why I'm asking. I just I wonder. What do you mean? Why do I need to talk? Well, I mean, I'm going to speak for you. Please. Let me jump yeah, in. I'm, yeah. I'm his, his colleague here. Yeah. Why we do this? We we do this uh, procedure all the time. Like why would so we need to talk? Barely to them? an incision. Why do we need to talk like to them? Yeah. yeah. And 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 you know it may be it may it absolutely be that this is the. And what, the, what kind of degree do you have again? Oh, I have a I have a PhD. Okay, we have MDs. Oh. So oh, we, yeah. oh, but <laughs> did I mention it's in philosophy? Well, okay, yeah, yeah. that's all right. Yeah, go so, on, go yeah, on, thank go you. on. Um, and, <laughs> Pretty, okay. Um, you know, I and and you're absolutely right that this might be the the right plan of care for for her. Um, and if it is, I'm I, by all means, I'm not telling you not to do it. But I'm. Wait, can I pause for a second? Yeah. What are you really? Do you really act like that? Is that exactly kind of how you talk to them? Yeah. You're okay. Cool. Okay. Carry on. Time yeah, in. Time yeah. in. No. I mean, uh, I, I'm I. I always make it clear to, to everyone that I I'm I really am asking questions a lot of times yeah, because yeah, like, yeah. I don't know the answer. But you're also there's a demeanor of like 
I just I I don't want to step on anybody's yeah. you know uh, I I don't want to uh, you know and, and this is a very specific scenario I could I could give a different one with like a, an attending physician who I might be a little bit more direct to but in this case are you ever hardcore I know have you yelled at these fools uh, <laughs> no I've I, I've I've not yelled at any physicians that I work nurses with. no no because nurses are the best. Um, Do nurses know better than doctors sometimes? Nurses have the advantage of spending 12 hours a day with patients and families and learning who they are, mm. while physicians ah. spend a lot less time. The human element is more present with the nurses yeah. than there are yeah. the, the, the doctors. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love nurses and the role that they play in a hospital as the, the real caretakers mm -hmm. and the ones that really feel the brunt of these decisions because they're the they're the intermediary between the doctors making these choices. Do nurses right. get to weigh in ever? It oh, that that totally depends on the unit, the physician, the team, the nurse, how much time there is, how much support the nurses have from. I mean, would you want um, if you ever became uh, ill or something or had a health issue? Would you want a nurse dealing with you rather than a doctor at this point? Uh, well, I would want. I would want both, but I, I also know that I could, I would have no problem stopping a doctor and asking questions. Are you like, attracted to nurses? I mean, not like just writ large. Romantically. I, mean, I, I don't know. I just thought maybe you, <laughs> you seem to like them. I no, I like them because they <laughs> care, <laughs> you know? Oh, no, it makes sense. I was just, in addition to that. I just, um, <laughs> I mean, now, okay, can you do an example? Have you well, ever well, been more firm with a doctor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you um, do that? I, um, I, I got to get this guy to surgery. This little fucker broke his hip. Yeah, yeah so on the, the thing is, it, if, if it, oh, is it the same patient? Well, I would be curious to finish that one out because I was curious uh, what happened. Oh, I, I, I kind of was curious about just, you know, your general yeah. approach, which I think he, he did, but we can, we can finish that out. Well, I, I mean, think. To, well, that, that was a real case. Yeah. 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 And, and it, but the, the issue was, was like that, that very well may, might be the right thing for this patient, but I'd really be interested to hear what kind of quality of life she had before she came in here and what kind of quality of life we're looking at afterwards. Uh, because this is a pretty big procedure and you said, that she has dementia, so I don't know how with it is she is, and I don't think we any of us do because she just came in sedated. So I I really think it'd be important to learn more about her and what kind of life she would find acceptable before you put her through anything. Fine, you've got five minutes. Go talk to him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then what? Well, then I would say actually I, I think it's up it's up to you to talk to the family oh, because okay. it's one thing after the next. You're the uh, one. Yeah. You're the I one that knows the medicine. Have they ever acted this? Uh, Difficult, actually. Yeah, not like that. Yeah. I mean, I've been shut down before. Uh huh. Um, Has anyone ever told you to get out of here? Get out of here. You know. No, no, I've, I've not been told to scram. Are they? Are they? They're. They're not even allowed to do that, right? They can't. Like, they're. You're required to be there, right? No, you're not. Okay. No, I mean, I. Yeah, people could tell me to leave. Does um, every hospital have a bioethicist? Every hospital in order to be accredited by the Joint Commission, which is the people that accredit hospitals, needs to have an ethics mechanism. Mm. What that mechanism is, is up to the hospital to decide and show that they have one. So some, some places that's an ethics committee where they'll do ad hoc consultations with people from the committee. Some is dedicated ethics people. Um, smaller places might have like 
a tele consult like mm. you'd call a person there's, there's no one there's in hotlines no you'd, you'd actually just contract with the guy okay yeah. how many uh, are at your hospital there are uh, three and a half three full-time one part-time which is pretty big for a hospital you know and we last year our department did over 250 ethics consultations um there are some hospitals that will do one or two in a year do you, guys, you go on you guys double up no Hmm. No, do you, you don't call in for backup for like for we, we talk to each other okay for sure do you for sure do you feel like you have with the other two full-time um ethicists do you um feel like your approach is the same i i or think your thought your thought process is is similar i think it's pretty similar yeah. which i i think is why i got hired there mm. oh um, okay is is that they were looking for someone that also wasn't of the sort that like, oh, well, yeah, you just check this box and this box and this box and you've done an ethics consult. That we're, we're all very interested in understanding what's going on. Does that make you a very empathetic person or a compassionate person? I, I don't know. Um, cause Would that, you describe yourself that way? I, and when you watch movies, do you cry? Not all the time. A lot of Pixar, of course. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's. Uh, I mean, do you feel like you you this? It just feels like uh, the human factor is a big part of what you do, uh, or at least about what you think about and and talk about with these doctors. So I I wonder if that makes you uh, a humanistic kind of person. You know? For me personally, that also gets kind of married into the critical thinking cerebral side which is a little bit more detached yes so how those two play with one another and interact with each other is i'm probably not the best judge of mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd have to talk to other people uh um, oh, yeah but i do you feel like you're a considerate person yeah yeah have you ever been in a relationship before where the other person thought that you were being selfish um or do you feel like that's a criticism you probably don't get because you are generally considerate and it's helped by the job that you do? No, I don't think. Uh, no, I don't think selfish would be a word that would come up. What, what about like too? Uh, you're too like thoughtful in the moment. You guys are having an argument or you know, oh, yeah. dinner, yeah, and you're just like course. too pulled out and too. You're not just yeah. reacting. You know? Oh, you ever, yeah, too detached. Yeah, yeah, yeah too yeah. detached. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, definitely. Uh huh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super awesome and always goes really well. <laughs> and wait, do you have, do you have the doctors come to your office or do you go to theirs? I go to theirs. Oh, because it might be more not that you need to influence them, but they might be more willing to listen at an away away game or whatever um, at, at an away office. <laughs> maybe, but I I find that being doctors are appreciative if you're working to be helpful. Right. And and throwing up roadblocks towards something that some of them are already a little bit wary of, or kind of like, is this going to be too much time? If I, I mean, and, and actually, I I rarely go to doctors' offices. But we're like in the unit, yeah, on the floor. Do would you ever um, have you ever ma- felt like you made a mistake? Yeah, with yeah. The, the way you approached a, a doctor, or um, I mean. And maybe, or um, that you help them see things in the 
in the wrong way to you looking back on it? I, I mean, you can, yes. I mean, I, but you can, there's a thousand ways for every conversation to go. Um, and the counterfactual, what if you can never answer, uh, that doesn't mean we are not really reflective on how we do what we do and ways we could have done it differently. Mm -hmm. And if we could have done it better, um, and do you share stories with the other ethicists to help figure it out together? How could we, how could yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you get, you get feedback from that. Yeah, I, I was, you give them feedback. <laughs> yeah. I was a little late here today because our weekly meeting about our cases ran long because mm -hmm. we were talking about a specific case. Right. Um, but has there ever been a doctor who was really resistant to you at first and they thought they didn't need you to butt mm -hmm. in or anything like that. And then you, you know, you work things out with them and talk to them. And afterwards they said, you know, I was really pushing back on this, but I'm actually glad you, you know, were part of this. And yes. And that. that the, that happens though, often when the case gets solved quote in the way that they kind of wanted it to. Oh, okay. You know, like, like, uh, you helped me get to my outcome. I'm like, well, I didn't actually do that, but mm -hmm. it, have you ever had, but what about it? When it, it hasn't worked out that way where they ended up, um, they ended up dealing with things in maybe even the opposite way mm -hmm. that they intended to, to begin with. Um, and, but through talking with you and they were resistant to it at first, you helped them see it a different way. They went that other way. And then they were, they thankful that you were part of it. Has that ever happened? I don't know that. I don't know that doctors are ever thankful that they got talked out of doing something that they wanted to do, but that's, <laughs> My, my, my hope is in cases where they end up doing something differently because of whatever occurred with my involvement. It's because they came to an understanding of why what is happening is happening and what their part of it is. They had their own breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, in, in, it, it, honestly, in, in, a, in a perfect consult for me, it's almost like they don't think I did anything. Right. Because the, I helped them think. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I came to that. Isn't that cool that I came to that idea and that realization? Are, are all doctors that um, self-important? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but are, are, are any, of them, any of them actually grateful and acknowledge that you helped me come yes, to this? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely had, you know, I've, you get the, the responses from the gamut. I've, you get I, all I, of them, yeah. I've, 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 Do you think it's easier to talk to a doctor if you're... Like he was saying, you team up with another ethicist so that there's two ethicists kind of telling him, how about this other option? And then that might make him, or is that going to make him more defensive or what? It's going to make him more defensive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I'm, I am almost never, almost never going to say, how about this other option? Because again, that's a clinical judgment that I am not qualified to make. Right. But the, you know, I will state something as a fact, if it's something like, Hey, this patient has a do not attempt resuscitation order in their chart, but their full code, like in the medical record, you need to resolve that. Like I'll be, <laughs> you say that, yeah. Oh, you're, you take that tone with them sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Oh, so you're kind of firm with them. If, if there's something where I'm like, you actually not, I'm not, and that yeah, I, last week when I, or maybe this week, I don't remember when I did that, with with one patient it 
patient? You mean with one physician? With, with a physician about a patient. Okay, yeah. Um, the, it, as I said earlier, it was like, if, the, if it turns out that this patient is full code for whatever reason it is that you have figured out, great. I'm not telling you that this patient needs to be do not attempt resuscitation, but we need to know why these are discrepant and then either fix the paper or fix the charts and document why it's different. Um, again, not saying here's what medically needs to happen and saying medically right now, or logistically right now, these things don't align. And that's, that's scary if something happens to this patient and you have conflicting orders about what to do. Do you have to keep your cool? Yeah. Is yeah. that require some sort of level of training in a way? I don't know. I, I've been always relatively stoic. <laughs> Do you feel like there is a difference between male and female physicians and their openness to you? No. Um, you, you get all different sorts of reactions or open levels of openness regardless of their gender. Yeah, I think it, it, it is more about specialty than gender. Oh, oh, it's different special. You can, so you see more common interactions with certain specialties. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but um what's what okay, well who are the most difficult? Which kind of physicians? Oh, I know probably. Go ahead. What do you think? Brain surgeons. Ne neurosurgeons. neurosurgeons. Um <laughs> neuro neurosurgeons actually where I work, the neurosurgeons are very friendly with us mm -hmm. and very open to our involvement. Uh but surgeons generally are less likely to listen to us and is that because those are sort of the most highly regarded kind of doctors that are out there? It maybe just attracts a type of person that you know they Who, who's the most open usually pediatricians actually what's what's funny about that is um pediatricians don't call us either for the most part hmm. um but, and yeah. i think the reason for that is the the default, if you have a kid in the hospital, is you do as much as you can to try to save that kid, help that kid, do what you can. So there's fewer calls to us about like, is this because everyone's on board with, yeah, let's let's do this. Mm -hmm. um, so not a lot of pediatric cases. What's a really hard one? What was a hard situation for you to wrap your head around? It's something that you just really you maybe you were even at a loss as to what to do God, um, I don't know if I'm going to come up with one off the top of my head but what I as I try to think about it what I will say is if I'm at a loss I mean I'm almost to start with I'm always at a loss because I I don't know what's going on you know if, if someone calls me I'm kind of like oh no something something's going wrong somewhere because they need us yeah um, but the ones that that get really tough, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to think of any one specifically, is when what the team seems to think would help a patient, and the patient doesn't have the capacity to speak for him or herself, you know, and it's a family member that just doesn't get it or might have some cognitive issues of the of their own mm -hmm. um or 
just won't show up. They, they're, they're avoidant. Um, those are really hard um, because it's, it's hard to even make the headway of understanding um, either because you can't have the conversation with a son, like, you know, or because he never shows up or you can't have a conversation with the, the brother because he can't logically process, but he's the only one there to like, those are really tough because I, I really think that even when things don't go the, the way that you, you want them to go as physicians, you know, cause I, I also still try to not put what I want into this because mm-hmm. that's not important. But when you can't even really figure out why you can't get there, you know, there, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a concept in, in clinical ethics called moral distress, which is when a clinician, a physician, a nurse, whomever it is, I mean, um, thinks that they know what the right thing to do is, but for some reason cannot act on that knowledge. Um, and moral stress is very real and it happens to all sorts of clinicians. And the best I can do in response to moral distress is, is if you get clear on why you're doing the thing you're doing and it makes sense, as I was saying earlier, for someone and it still doesn't feel good to you, but you kind of get it then you can be okay, you can be at peace. You, can't, you don't have to like it, you don't have to agree with it, but you can be at peace with what's happening. In, in these cases I'm talking about, you, you can't even get that, that peace of mind because you don't have access to the information. Um, you don't get the context in which a decision is being made. Um, and in cases like that, it's kind of a meta understanding and it's that you understand that you did everything you could to try to get at that conversation, try to get at that way of thinking or not thinking or whatever it is. And if you can't, your professional limits only go so far. You're, you're only the one person. You can't, you know, you, if you have a fighting couple that's been fighting for 60 years and it's a toxic relationship and they come in and they're, th- that dynamic is part of the, pro- the p- problem, you're not gonna solve if you're a physician or a nurse or a respiratory therapist or whatever it is, you're not going to solve that six decade long argument they've been having. You can only do your piece within that context. Do you love your job? Love is a, is a, is a hard word for that. Um, you find it really fulfilling. I find it really fulfilling. I am so fortunate that I have found the, the job that I want for my entire life. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Um, hmm. So you don't, that doesn't make you love it? It's, lo- I guess, do you, love, do you loving like- that seems almost perverse because it's, it's, it's a really hard job and it's sure. built on situations that are not. They're kind of grim situations. They're, gr- they're yeah. oftentimes grim mm-hmm. situations. It, I get, do, but do you love the, um, I know that you don't really like to use the word solving or whatever, but do you like the problem solving aspect of it? I, the critical thinking yeah. aspect of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Do you love that? The critical thinking aspect of it. You know? I mean, that's... It, Do you love that you can apply in a real world grounded way stuff that, you, you know, that is, you know, in school for a lot of it, you thought was not something I, that could be applied I feel, this way? I feel so fortunate um, 
that I'm a, I'm allowed to be a part of caring for other people. And I, and in, at times, not always, but at times you, I can see that meaningful difference in real time, which does fulfill me and make me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that part of it. Uh, you sometimes do have to talk to the families too. Yeah. Yeah. Why would that be? Sometimes there's a family meeting with the whole team and the family. Um, and, uh, they think that having us there as a facilitator or just another person to throw ideas out. Have you um, ever, do you ever talk to the family or the patients one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah. Um, How there, does that happen? Sometimes, it, you know, very rarely we get um, consults from the patient or family. And so then you talk to them. Um, there, there's, I can, I can think of one a, a couple months ago where a patient was uh, declining a surgeon's recommendation for a, a surgery um, and wanted to be discharged home, and no one could figure out why. What was the surgery? Or can you say the surgery? I mean, it was, um, it was uh, um, removing part of um, the intestine, basically. Um, and, it, you know, it seemed like something that would help her according to the surgeon and according to the medical team. And they just, they couldn't get much out of the patient as to why she was refusing. And so in that instance, I wasn't going to get anywhere if I didn't talk to her because I, I needed to actually know firsthand what she was thinking about and what she was worried about. And because in, in a case like that, where the physicians had kind of run at her a number of times and hadn't gotten anywhere, I wasn't going to try to train them into how and in, in having a conversation in a different way because maybe they did do that. You know, I'm not going to try to ask. Oh, how did you ask her this way? And did you? I was like, I'll I'll just go in mm -hmm. and see what she's thinking about and see how she's experiencing the situation. So maybe I can, at the very least, bring that back to the physicians so they have that understanding. How do they react to you usually, family members or patients? Um, do they? Do they kind of start thinking of you like a doctor and you're, and you keep on having to tell them, Oh, I'm not a doctor. I don't do this. It, it some, you know, if I'm talking to a patient, are they, are know, they confused when you say, hi, I'm a bioethicist, Andy. I, I have a PhD. Yeah. I have a PhD. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know? I mean, yeah. they, sometimes they're confused. Sometimes it's like, and what do you do exactly? And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, patients often are, are pretty okay with me coming in. Um, because they're so used to consultants just coming in and asking them stuff. Right. And so I'm, in some ways, I'm just another person that's coming in and asking them things. Mm -hmm. um, family members sometimes are like, "Are you? Are you here? Well, like, what? What did they tell you was wrong? You know, you know, like we're a canary in the coal mine of of wait. If you're here, what what's going on? Mm. Um, and in the, the the way I try to diffuse that is, you know, hey, we, we got called by by the medical team who just wanted a, a, someone to help think through how to take care of you, you know, and that's that's just what I'm here to do. I'm here to help them help you, and whatever that looks like is is just what I'm here to do. So, you know, I, just here I, to chat. Do they ever get um, aggressive towards you? I mean, 
not often. I, I have, it's more, more doctors that will get aggressive towards you. I've, I've <laughs> been yelled at by more patients and family members than doctors. Oh, really? Yeah. You yeah. get yelled at more by the patients than It doesn't and happen often, but oh, it's, it's... Why do they yell at you? <laughs> we, we had a real good one. Um, this was at my last job. This is a, a couple of years ago where we got called for really, really gross, gross is the wrong word, but really difficult family dynamics. And uh, the, the patient didn't really have capacity to make decisions. And um, the mother was controlling and splitting the medical team and lying and was difficult to deal with as well. And I had to lying, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So I had to come into the room and explain to her. How do you know that they were, she was lying? Oh, because we could fact check the thing she was saying Uh against what the patient. Did they ever call her out on the line? Well, the reason I got yelled at in that day, at least Hmm. was because I had to go in and explain to her that we were not going to honor the power of attorney she had presented us from her daughter because it was like we had explained that her daughter did not have decision-making capacity. And so she had either forged or coerced her daughter mm-hmm. into signing a power of attorney that we would not honor because you have to have capacity to make decisions to name a surrogate decision-maker. And so I had to explain to her that in, in different words, but you can't, like, we see what you're doing here and you can't do that. <laughs> like, and she yelled at you. Oh, yeah. What, what did she you say? Um, I mean, it was in the, in the way that people with some sort of personality issues do. They first deny it, you know, deny the, deny the lie, then yell loudly enough to try to get their way and how this is bullshit and I'm going to go talk to whomever and blah, 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 and then kick you out of the room. And did you say calm and detached? Yeah, of course. Cause oh, hell yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, in that case, you know, so, some, you know, you know how sometimes you get yelled at and you're like, Oh, did I do something wrong? Like, Oh no, this was like, no, I, I actually, I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm right. This mm-hmm. one time in my life. <laughs> Have you yeah. ever, has, has it happened where they do yell at you and you think, uh Oh, I, maybe I did something wrong here. Um, no, I've, I've been yelled at in, in ways that I think they're yelling at the situation more than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in those cases, I going back to one of your other questions, like, am I just making this worse? Right. Am I, mm. am I here trying to help? And I've riled someone up that didn't need to be riled up and it's not going to change the situation. And I've, I've just upset someone that really didn't need to be upset because I, I thought it was the useful thing to do off hours. Are you ever haunted by your work? I don't, I'm haunted, no, um, but in what we do, you, you know, I I go to work and I wear a tie and I sit at a desk and do stuff and then I go home and I don't wear a tie and I sit on the couch, but watch, watch though, and watch baseball. <laughs> uh, but those two worlds are, are always actually intertwined, so. I might have a baseball game on my iPad at work just to like distract myself every couple minutes, but also I might go home and think about what I did that day or what I'm going to do tomorrow. Who's your team that you root for? So I, I got two teams. I got the uh, the A's and the Dodgers. So okay. I'm, I'm from the Bay Area originally, so raised an A's fan, but both my parents were raised Dodgers fans, so they also raised me as a, as a Dodgers fan. So I got both of them. 
Okay, so what about when they're fighting each other? <laughs> well, when, um, actually, they, they played together this year um, at Dodger Stadium, and I, I went to the game, and... Uh, you didn't know what to do? I, I, well, going in, I actually I, I didn't know who I was going to root for. Was there a, and, is there a baseball ethicist you could have called? I wish. I, I, sh- I should corner that market. Uh, but what's funny is that my dad told me the same thing about when he went to the 88 World Series between the A's and the Dodgers. Uh, he didn't know who he was going to root for until he walked into the stadium and sat down in his seat. Mm. And so that was kind of like my experience this year. So I, you went off of gut. So you couldn't. You could. You so you couldn't use logic, and you couldn't use well, actually what, I, what you use in, in your work. The logic wasn't working because I so I, I came in, sat down, and I knew I was rooting for the A's. But it's, your gut started talking to you. My gut like told early. me the A's. Like once the game started. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the logic part of my brain was like, well, the A's don't have a shot at the playoffs this year, but the Dodgers do. So this means more for the Dodgers. So. Should I be rooting for them? Because on, only for one team does this game even matter. Okay, so so, so your your thought your work thought process was coming into this kind of. Yeah, I was I was trying to think critically about something that my in this case my gut though had already told me. Yeah, what, but your brain told told you otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, what happened? How, what, how did it resolve well, itself? So or it didn't get resolved, of course. But it, what, in what that was, one what game, was the in, in that one game, I'll be ver- the A's won, and. In the moment, I was pretty happy, and then I went home and was kind of bummed. Because it, it <laughs> couldn't you do? How about this though? In this special case, wouldn't it have been better to just not root for either one of them? But my gut wouldn't let it's me do uncontro- that. Really. It's involuntary. Yeah. I mean, just appreciate it as an exhibition. Well, the, the, of, that's the of two teams that you both, you know, root. That's that you the, love. That's the thing with fandom, though. It, it's it's a gut, and you know, you have no choice. You can't root for both teams at the same time. Hell no. No, and uh, you, you can though root against two teams at the same time like uh-huh. if if the red Sox and the yankees play each other you can want both of them to lose it won't happen which is un- upsetting and so when it came to the dodgers versus the, the oakland a's did you feel that was a little bit of an ethical dilemma it was it was a little bit of a quandary i mean, eth- I mean ethical as far as your your um your loyalty goes it was well the like the, ethically, the, who should you be the most the, the loyal to? The ethical question there is: is my is should I let my emotional response yes. or my rational response win out? Which is which is more important in this context? Yeah. And I decided that in the context of a meaningless early season baseball game, to let my my emotions went out now and yet you're generally a very stoic detached person yeah but man it's 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 going to be real interesting when i've lived here long enough and the dodgers fandom overtakes the ace fandom and what that's going to do to my soul like how sad i'm going to be that i've lost that but also still really happy about going to dodgers games Mm -hmm. and rooting for them um so i've i'm i'm now also just intellectually curious about when that moment in time will come. Like how long living in LA will it be until the Dodgers overtake the A's as my team? Hmm. I have no idea, but it's going to be interesting to find out. Have your friends ever said anything? You know, ever since you've had this job, you've been getting increasingly 
um, darker with your, pers- your, your, uh, no, I think they've always <laughs> thought I've been misanthropic. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, um, does it ever ways. take a toll on you emotionally at all? I don't, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I went into this with eyes wide open about what the job was, I think. Mm-hmm. So going way back to that, that first day when I went and shadowed, uh, the guy that was an ethicist at a, at a hospital out there in Chicago. Um, I got there at 10 a.m. and he was rounding with the ICU team there. And he said, okay, well, we're gonna finish rounding at 10. Um, and then at 11.30, we're gonna go back to room 32 and take her off of life support. Uh, and then we'll see what uh, what happens in the afternoon. And I didn't, like I, I went thinking I was gonna sit down for like an hour and just talk to him about his job and just learn about what it is. Cause remember I just found out it was a job. So cut to 90 minutes later, we're in the patient's room with her family as they're pulling out the breathing tube to let her die. Um, and, and they're all crying. Yeah. Yeah. And did that make you kind of want to cry or anything? Or because you're kind of stoic, it didn't, it it, didn't have that? It was, it, it was, at that point, it was surreal. Yeah. Um, Do you ever get caught up in the emotions sometimes yourself? With family I, members? Not that much because I'm... I'm have you ever got teary-eyed? I think I've gotten... No, probably not, but I've gotten sad about ways things have worked out. Oh yeah. You know, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. knowing that it could have worked out a different way. It could have worked out a different way. And, but because of the stubbornness of something of an element in the, uh, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In the situation, and, and it, it didn't work out that it, way. And it didn't work out that way. And do you think it's usually stubbornness that prevents things from working out in a better way? It not, Re- or, or, I mean, or strict, Adherence to religious beliefs. I actually, I think the strict religious adherence is the easy one in, uh-huh. in reality because, you know, I don't share that religion. But if you've lived your whole life that way, why wouldn't you die that way? Like that, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the ones where, you know, a patient says, you know, I know, I, I don't, I don't want to take your recommendation for. X, I just, um, I want to go home. And I, you know, in some way I get that, but I know that home is real and safe and not having whatever procedure that was or not going to a skilled nursing facility is, is gonna cause problems, like very real problems. And, but that stubbornness, you know, but mm-hmm. sometimes things just don't work out because everyone, everyone thinks of medicine as a science and it is, it is an art. And, and, and by that, I mean, you can do everything the right way as best you know how, and things still don't work out. You know, it, it's like playing poker so in some ways. Like, you can do everything right and be holding pocket aces and still lose to a flush. Like, you know, you, you can do everything right and play the hand right and have the best starting hand and still get screwed on the river. It's like, it's like baseball. 
It's it's exactly <laughs> like baseball. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you can't check that swing, but it and those those are those are tough too. Those are real tough just cuz it couldn't have gone any other way. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anyone's fault. And those are really hard for family members to to get, which I totally understand. I'm not saying like why don't they just understand that it didn't work out? Like but People are looking for a reason, and sometimes reason comes in the form of blame. Yeah. So they're looking for someone to blame, mm-hmm. and I get that. But it you get the blame? No, no, no I understand no. that. Yeah, you understand that. It's, yeah. it's hard for them to blame me. I'm like I was not in the operating room, right? right. But uh, but you, I can get. I have, can be the source of that. I can be the outlet of that frustration. Yeah. Did you have to learn a lot of medical terms and stuff when you? you know, before doing this job or what? Uh, no, there, you know, there's, there's, I mean, you know, these words like tracheotomy and stuff. There's, <laughs> how do you, how do you learn so, all that? So many people are going to write into you be like, this guy got all of that wrong. <laughs> um, when I did my, my internship and I rounded in the ICU, I would write down every medical term I didn't know. So you don't learn this in school. You didn't learn the medical terms in, in school. In philosophy school? No. Right. No, no but even, with with the idea of becoming a bioethicist or whatever, no, there wasn't a course on that or something. No, and there's actually there's of there's different mindsets in my field of how much medicine you should know. Right. Uh, there are some people that think you should know all the medicine because you have to get what's going on exactly and and offer recommendations that way. And there are some that think you should know nothing because mm-hmm. you, you need to more, be coming from a different yeah. viewpoint. Right. And it. Once you're an insider, you can't think like an outsider. Right. And it's the thinking outside that actually creates avenues for other ways of doing. And would you say you're a little bit of both kind of a thing? I think I am. Yeah. Um, so you picked up stuff in your, during your internship, and that's sort of what you... And you probably picked up more stuff since then, but you you never trained for that. or No, never, no. You know, and you never um, sought it out on, on really... Are there uh, any... Medical bioethicists, like medical doctors that are bioethicists. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, for sure, there are MDs that are bioethicists mm-hmm. with PhDs. Uh, not necessarily. So, Whoa. an interesting thing about my field too is that there's actually a lot of ways to get to what I'm doing. So you can do, you can have a PhD in philosophy. You can have a PhD in religion. You can do, you can have an MD. Can you have a master's degree in philosophy? You can. Oh, um, you can be a bioethicist with a master's. Some places, yeah. Um, Could you have a BA? What about an AA? <laughs> I mean, it, there's there's no. What about a high school diploma? It depends. <laughs> you know, because no, I mean, there also there are fellowships you can get in in clinical ethics too. So some people are MDs with a fellowship. Some people are PhDs. Some uh, some people are clinical psychologists. Some people are lawyers. It's probably um, easier to get a job if you have a PhD. Probably, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And now <laughs> there's there's a big discussion in our our field if. Uh, about whether or not we should become certified, if there should be a certification process. Oh, um, and what, how? What would that entail? You think um, some kind of eth- ethics test or mm-hmm. something like yeah, that? It yeah, it would. It sure would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Multiple choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, do but you think there should be? I don't. Uh-huh. Um, I think they wouldn't test you like how, like re- interacting with you know fake patients. Like no, they would. They would. They you would do. make you submit a portfolio probably of, of cases that you've done, hmm. but my, I would be really worried about the, you know, as I just said, there's a lot of different ways to do what I do, which means there are a lot, a lot of different ways to think about both how I do what I do and ways of doing it. And a certification I worry would homogenize in ways that are less helpful hmm. in that you, ha- you, 
to be good at this, you should think about it in this way on these terms. For the interview of your for your job or the job interview or whatever, mm-hmm. do they their their assessment of you? Do they give you um, scenarios to do, to think about or or uh, to, do they say how okay how would you deal with this situation? Do well, they do that? as as always? It depends. One one job I interviewed for, they had a fake scenario. Yeah, and they said, "Here's we're going to play these roles. Yeah, you're going to interview us, and you're going to have an." They hour. did it just like with Donnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. and then you're going to have an hour to like write a a consult note for the chart that was, and then, yeah. but, uh, at one job, I just talked that the one I have now, I just talked with my now colleagues for a long time, uh. but we didn't really talk about cases. You talked about baseball maybe a little bit <laughs> that actually in that day, we talked about a lot of weird, like I, yeah. Fugazi came up for a while. It, <laughs> it was, it was a weird, weird day. Oh, what happened with the, um, the girl that didn't want to get the intestine piece removed. Uh, she went home uh, without the surgery. And what I found to be really interesting about that is, one, she kind of had good reasons for not, like she wasn't the most, she wasn't the most articulate of people. And she didn't want to engage me a terrible amount, which is okay. But I, I talked with her for, I don't know, half an hour or something. And she had some good reasons for for not wanting the surgery. And then in talking with the physicians, and this goes all the way back to what we were saying kind of at the beginning, it wasn't that she needed the surgery. It's just that they saw a problem and the way to fix that one problem is to have this surgery. But this problem was not necessarily life-threatening and it was not so urgent that they needed to do a surgery now. So their frame, their mindset was, we need to do this. And the real answer was, no, we don't need to. So did, when you learned that, did you change your mind? I mean, I didn't have, my mind was never made up because, right. you know, someone calls me. And I, right, right, the right. first thing I do is figure out what's going on or not. That's Well, you know how your job is to not really decide what to do, mm-hmm. but just to help people realize things in the back of your head though. Are you making decisions though? You know that you're not. You must have an opinion on it. Yeah. yeah do you, sometimes. I mean, that's that's honest. The, the honest answer is sometimes. So and, most and, of the times, you leave situations uh, thinking, yeah, it could go either way. It really, just depends on that. You know, you don't really have. You haven't made up your mind about anything. You don't make decisions about stuff. I. I guess that's. I should say that differently. I will. I will have an idea of what makes sense after I've talked to a lot of people and and thought with them but that when someone calls me i am really good at withholding any sort of judgment like that is it hard um, for you to make decisions about st- stuff that's not work related um yeah it depends actually uh which <laughs> sorry uh <laughs> um but I don't know. If, if something's not that important, I don't want to think too. Do you ever about take it. the, um, I don't know, your your skill set outside of the job and use it in your everyday life, or just like critical yeah. thinking? Yeah, I mean, I we did kind of talk about this already, but I mean, you know, even when it comes down to picking what you want at a at tender greens, tender greens, <laughs> you know, or something, or at a restaurant, or like, uh, you know, how, what you're going to decide. You use logic a lot, right? That's kind yeah, of what you do. Yeah. That's a, a lot of your job is logic based, right? In, 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 yeah, yeah. In, in, in 
uh, after a fashion. Yeah. Uh, and then and are you logical about the way you order food at a restaurant? I ha- I, actually, I no, not for, I, although when I, I was a vegetarian for 10 years and I kind of liked that because it made ordering so much easier because uh-huh. there's less and, options. Yeah. There's like two. Do you find that the um, more options there are, the more difficult it is for you to make a decision? No, not, I mean, not with food. Cause I want, cause some things taste good and some things don't. Uh, mm-hmm. but I have been, I've been called out on like, if I'm telling a story, I often will like out loud bracket part of it to go over. Like I, kind of will tell stories in logic structure mm. and, you know, caveat things that probably don't need to be caveated, you know, and like make notations of where I'm basing things on conjecture or like, well, I don't know this person firsthand, so I'm hearing it from someone else. So just, you know, you know I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty, I, and I, you know, just cause I want to be clear on, on what I'm saying. And so that, goes into my personal life where, you know, words like, have meaning. Like, do you love me? <laughs> oh, I, that's a loaded kind of. That's, I mean, <laughs> I enjoy the time we spend together. It's hard to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What about hit, plastic hit. surgeons? What about them? <laughs> you ever, that isn't coming to play. I, well. Is there plastic sur- surgery at the hospital you work at? Yeah, because oh, there there can be re- reconstructive. Right. As what about cosmetic, to, though? I have no idea. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm. You never get called in for cosmetic surgery situations, right? No, no. Oh, really? No. Um, not that, I mean, not that I can recall, What about this, but, though? What but, about there's somebody who wants to keep getting work done on their face to yeah. whatever. And then and the doctor doesn't think that they should, you know, but they're paying for it or yeah, something. And, I don't and know. Like, they, really they, could, they could call us, but I, I, it's never happened to me that anyone's I'm surprised. called. They, they could actually seriously right. start doing damage to their right. face. And, by, but, uh, yeah, I mean, or calves. Like they want calf implants. You know. A physician can... Or butt implants. Yeah, yeah, butt uh, well, implants. A, a plastic cow. surgeon can absolutely say no. You know, right. um, oh, they can. Okay. I mean, I think that if, if you're not... If, if someone comes to you and asks you to do something and you're a physician... If you just said yes to everything, you would actually be a very bad physician. Mm-hmm. Um, like, n- there are very few surgeons where if I went in and said, "Will you cut my arm off?" They would say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so if I if if I'm a plastic surgeon and you consult with me, you're not my patient. We don't have a therapeutic relationship. I can say I'm not going to do that. If you're my patient, then there's a longer conversation to be mm-hmm. had about what it means to care for a patient and you can't abandon a patient, but does, that doesn't mean you have to do everything a patient asks you to do. And that's not just for plastic surgeons. You don't have to give certain pain medications to patients you feel are drug seeking in some instances. You know, you, do you have any uh, ethical uh, judgments about plastic surgery? You know, it actually fewer than you might hope. I it's it's. I, I wouldn't think you had any. Really. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it's not. That's not something I spend any time thinking about. <laughs> uh, okay, the girl with the intestine that refuses the surgery. Mm-hmm. If, if if that if you knew that that was gonna like really destroy her if she didn't get the surgery, mm-hmm. would you? And you're one on one with her in the room. Would you be like? Please just get this get the surgery. You're gonna be toast if you're not. I swear to God. And you're like trying to really level there. You're like I would, you're no, like, I would never do that. What I would say in, in an instance like that is that the more I learned about the non necessity of the surgery, as as 
much as it might be medically indicated in some ways, you know, then the threshold for her refusing it is lower. Like I need to, in some ways I need to understand her refusal less. Like, and that goes with anything in life. If, if, when, if, I, if when I came in and you offered me a water, I was like, no, you wouldn't, that, that'd be the end. You don't need to know why I didn't want the water. Yeah. Um, but if I'm dying of dehydration and of thirst or whatever, and you offer me water and I say no, you're going to want to figure out why that is. Like the, the threshold for my refusal is that is something higher. you do? Is that you, you've asked a lot of questions why to people? Not exactly. Just, just to I, get... I, you know, I, I try not to, to sound like a, you know, four year old, <laughs> but um, somewhat, in some ways, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm asking why sometimes, because I, honest to God, don't know, I'm not a medical professional. I'm new to the situation. I don't know the contours. Sometimes it's the why is getting me to be able to hear what someone is thinking about, mm-hmm. like giving an account for where they're at and why they think what they think. And sometimes it's to get them to hear them say that to themselves, to say out loud mm. what they've kind of have as a feeling and maybe have some sort of justification for it, but haven't named it or framed it or even been able to explain it to someone else. And sometimes it's just because you're genuinely curious. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I just want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was what you were all about in school. <laughs> I, I majored in just asking, what? <laughs> um, oh, what about uh, Terry Schiavo? What, well, what about her? Did you follow that back in the day? Um, not that much, but um, so there's there's a lot of things that went on with Terry Schiavo, obviously. Um, I th- One thing I will say as a kind of actual statement is that even though Bill Frist is a medical doctor, him trying to diagnose a patient over video to so what happened was bill frist was like i'm an md he was also in the senate uh i'm an md uh i can diagnose over video whether or not she's in a persistent vegetative state mm-hmm. you no don't do that um i have some real issues with how the government got involved in that case um in what really should have been a, a it was a family dispute between her parents and her husband Mm. Um, what he wanted to he wanted to withdraw interventions and they wanted to keep those interventions going Um, it's messy and the facts as I remember them which are I'm probably speaking far afield right now of what I actually know or remember is that he was the power of attorney even though they were divorced and that should have held a lot of weight someone someone somewhere mishandled that at the outset and then uh jeb bush and bill frist and george bush really decided to mishandle that situation (laughs) all right let's wrap it up always good to end on shivo (laughs) i mean is there any (laughs) last words you want to leave us with Uh, (laughs) not really um i i or do you think like like influence like if somebody was like six foot eight like and they're bioethicists or 
I don't know. Just is, is influence coming to play at all, or like? It, yeah, I mean, I yeah, think if you have like a, charisma, phys, a, a domineering physical presence, does that? Yeah, what does that do? You know, it. I couldn't. If you stare at somebody in the eyes, does that <laughs> do something? To yeah, them? it's like, I, yeah. There's I like can't. T- I can't answer you as to how other people experience ethics consultants coming and talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to be very open and friendly and unassuming, um, but I, I, I honestly don't know. I. I you you would hope, and of course it's not the case that physicality doesn't have to do with how you're perceived in the world in a in this sort of setting. Mm-hmm. Would, mm-hmm. But of course it is, and so it's trying to make sure that you're not being imposing, and you're not being um, you're not running people over. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's very important to to be deferent when deference is necessary to speak up when speaking up isn't necessary but do you have to sm- fake smile um ever i'm i probably should oh really <laughs> I, I mean i but you know i do you ever I, wink no because that's so creepy <laughs> <laughs> no one should ever wink ever sure yeah i know <laughs> Uh, look, well, thank you for uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, and, thanks uh, yeah. and thanks for having about me. your experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. my pleasure. Yeah. Our guest has been Andy Kondrat. Thank you to Donnie Devanian for being here. Our engineer is Aaron Bruntgart. If you like the program, um, you can go to iTunes and you, you can rate uh, and review it. Um, you can also listen to the episodes on SoundCloud. You, there's, you can also go to allthingscomedy.com. Um, there's also a Facebook page. My name is Brent Weinbach. The name of the program is Pointed Questions. Thank you for listening. <laughs>